Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Friday, February 9th. I'm Hannah Floor. Concert pianist and music teacher Tony Liu is in Petersburg. He plans to spend a week in the schools playing for students and staff and giving workshops. Liu, who is blind, started playing the piano when he was five. But unlike most people, he learns by ear. The way I learn it is I go on YouTube, listen to maybe two to three seconds at a time, pause the video, and then memorize what I just heard, and try it on the piano and work it out, and then go on. Lu moved to the United States from China at age 16. Now 26, he lives in Vermont and teaches a wide variety of music classes to students of all ages. He brought that teaching experience to Petersburg High School's band class earlier this week. After recounting some of his life story, he turned to music history. He told students that while improv is mostly associated with jazz today, it used to be common in classical music as well. There are often sections of a song that are repeated in classical music. He says that today, most musicians play those repeats exactly as they're written. That's not what they did. In the Baroque and classical era, they decorate the second time when they play something. So I'm going to give you a relatively easy-to-listen-to example so you can get the concept. Here's a very standard Mozart piece. time they would do something like so there are a lot more notes right Lou plans to play a community concert as well. He says during concerts, he likes to provide a little historical context for each piece, a sort of auditory program note. I hope every single piece is a little surprising to them, and they're going to get to know the piece as I talk about the history part. Why would a piece be surprising to them? Well, usually because they, they expect the pianist to play piano music, and here they're hearing everything not originally written for the piano. So it's like, oh, this is for cello. Oh, this next one is for, you know, a a soprano singer and piano. He plans to perform a combination of orchestral and chamber music. Orchestral music is written for hundreds of musicians. Lu transcribes those pieces for a single musician to play on the piano. He says he spends a lot of time listening to the original version and trying to figure out what each instrument is doing. Then he pairs down the piece, trying to convey its essence with far fewer notes. But Lou says he won't be playing just classical music. If you don't like Beethoven, Brahms, well, how often do you hear Russian jazz played in Alaska? <laughs> this is your chance. You can hear that Beethoven, Brahms, and Russian jazz at the Lutheran Church Sanctuary at 2 p.m. on Sunday, February 11th. Admission is free, although donations will be accepted. OBI Seafoods announced late last month it will not open its summer fish processing plant in Larson Bay on the west end of Kodiak Island. The company will still buy salmon from the area's fishermen, but will rely on its facility in the city of Kodiak instead. As Brian Venwa reports, it's the latest plant to close in a tough year for Alaska fisheries. 
Major processing companies in Alaska's seafood industry like Trident and Peter Pan have announced they're either selling assets or closing plants for upcoming seasons. Now, OBI is joining them in closing its processing plant in Larson Bay for the summer. Duncan Fields and his family have fished in the area for over 60 years. We were part owners in Kodiak Salmon Packers that owned the facility for about 25 years. So I have a deep personal and emotional ties with the plant at Larson Bay. The site was later bought by Ocean Beauty Seafoods, which merged with Icicle Seafoods to become OBI in 2020. Fields says he's not surprised the plant will close. Disappointed, but not surprised. We're in a crisis. Word seems to be overused these days, but in truth, uh, the Alaska processing uh, sector is facing headwinds on many fronts, and uh, particularly relative to salmon and salmon marketing. All of the salmon harvested in Larson Bay will instead be shipped to be processed by OBI's plant in Kodiak. Fish may also be shipped to support facilities in Seward and Cordova. John Hanrahan, the company's chief executive officer, said in a press release the decision was made in part because of a poor pink salmon forecast. Hanrahan also cited tough market conditions, saying the Kodiak plant, quote, has the ability to process salmon in a greater diversity of product forms, making it better suited to respond to salmon markets, end quote. The company will, however, keep a small team at the Larson Bay plant to provide services for its fleet. But in a small community like Larson Bay, which has fewer than 50 year-round residents, keeping the plant closed for the year could have a heavy impact. Larson Bay Mayor Bill Nelson said in a phone call the village will still provide utility services like electricity to the plant for its reduced crew. The community also has other revenue streams, including nearby lodges. But Nelson says the whole village will have to tighten its purse strings to make ends meet. Fields, the fisherman, agrees it will be a lean year for the village's finances. The sales tax that would come to the city of Larson Bay will not happen this year. So it's a very small community. That's a large part of their revenue, and so that will be devastating. OBI plans to reopen the Larson Bay plant in 2025, but Fields says he's still worried about the longevity of the facility. It's hard to start those back up again. Uh, You have a crew that uh, doesn't have a job for a year, they'll go elsewhere. How do you get that crew back? Um, You have all kinds of other costs uh, that are increased because you haven't operated for a year. Field says he understands OBI is just trying to survive as a company and hopes they can continue to be a partner in the community. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Benoit. Ketchikan had its 38th annual wearable art show last weekend. The town claims to have the first wearable art show in the world. The theme this year was the art of artifice. Jack Darrell has the story on how artists played with that theme, including local librarians, who brought a clear message about censorship to the stage. It's the last night of the wearable art show, and the Ted Ferry Civic Center is absolutely packed. People grab drinks, chat, and take their seats around a long runway jutting out from the stage like a huge T. The Sheets, a local band, kick things off. Brittany Rickard skips onto stage in a white dress, followed by James Vincent in black sequins. They're also the MCs for the night. The first act is by Rhonda Green. The piece's model, Green's granddaughter, Bailey Slaniker, struts down the runway. It looks like she's a hundred different swaying and moving colors, decked out in a spinning skirt of stacked buckets. The crowd's already on their feet. Then the show takes a turn for the nightmarish. A creature shoulders its way through the curtains, 
It stands on four legs with bristled fur like tree bark and stares out at the crowd through blue eyes above a gleaming orange mall. It looks like something from the Studio Ghibli film Spirited Away. It's the work of artist Evie Posey. Posey crawls down the stage in these captivating animal-like movements to the beat, barely recognizably human. The next act is also a departure from the human world. Bianca Jerzak is modeling the marketing artifice that was Zeppelin air travel. As a Zeppelin, her piece is huge, a giant silver airship. She moves down the runway surprisingly gracefully, though, trailing steam in her wake. She says, it, Oh, it was a lot of work. First of all, trying to find large enough pieces of whole cardboard. Um, and then it took it took a, a month. It was a whole month and then hours and hours. Many of the pieces took inspiration from the landscape and culture of Southeast Alaska. There was Kelsey McNeil's take on Southeast meets Southwest. A Southeast Alaska outlaw with rainbow tasseled chaps and a big silver western buckle clasping a Grundon's fisherman's belt. Britta Adams. The piece's model kicks and jumps her way down the runway like an old-fashioned rodeo star. And then one of the most notable moments in the evening. A banner stretches across the stage in hand-scrawled mock Latin. No lite te bastardes carborandorum. Don't let the bastards grind you down. From behind it come six figures in red robes, their mouths X'd out by red tape. It's the Ketchikan librarians. They form a circle at the end of the stage with their backs to the audience. Each red robe is different. A couple featuring flames, hands reaching out for the word freedom, one with a sniper target on the back. Then, each librarian throws open their arms one by one like a prize fighter before a match. Beneath their robes, each model wears a dress with a central message. One is made from the pages of the Constitution, another from the pages of Flamer by Mike Corrado, a book about a teen grappling with homophobia and bullying. Its inclusion in the Ketchikan Public Library was challenged last year for content the challenger deemed inappropriate. Backstage before the show, librarian Lisa Pearson, who came up with the idea, said it's a reaction to a nationwide rise in book bans. And it's not just a national issue, it's a statewide and local issue, and that we feel like we are being intimidated and... Uh, bullied and we're kind of tired of being told to sit down and shut up. Each librarian's piece represented their own take on the challenges they've had to face over the last year. Beneath her robe, Pearson is dressed as a warrior. Librarian Gail Brooks's robe is covered in hands. For me, I went with the hands off. Hands off. Hands off my body, hands off my books, hands off everything. When I feel my robe, it's red, white, and blue. Library director Pat Tully says the performance is cathartic after the challenges the library staff has had to deal with over the last year. Her garb is inspired by Maud, a 70s sitcom character that championed women's rights. Kathy Bowling, who's in a dress stitched from the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, agrees. And your own being is, is challenged and our ethics are challenged. We're, we're not going to sit by let that happen. The librarians get a standing ovation on the runway. According to the Ketchikan Area Arts and Humanities Council, which hosted the show, the first Ketchikan wearable arts was in 1986. That's a year before World of Wearable Art, the international show in New Zealand that made the form of expression famous and often advertises as the original, had their first wearable arts runway show. At the end of the night, the votes were tallied for next year's theme. Back to Our Roots was the winner. The artists 
some still clothed in their elaborate works of art, mingle with their adoring fans. Celebrating the art of artifice in Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrow. Juno's Amalga Distillery is a semi-finalist for the 2024 James Beard Awards category of Outstanding Bar. It's their first nomination, but not the first business in Juno to be recognized for the prestigious culinary award. Yvonne Crumery popped in to see what this means. The environment of Amalga's taproom is a focus for co-owner Mara Selenek. So when you come into our space, it's distinctively like not a traditional bar feel. We really wanted it to be like open and airy and light and welcoming. She says she and the staff create an environment where people can enjoy and learn what they can do with the alcohol that Amalga makes. Like, for example, their on-tap gin and tonics. At first, Selenek couldn't believe her distillery had been nominated. She and her co-founder slash husband found out through a friend. We woke up uh, and had a, a Instagram message from a friend saying, congratulations, James Beard. And it was shocking. Uh, we had to double check. We're like, is it a, is it a joke? Selenek says that even getting this far is a big enough deal for her. It was not even like on our radar as something that was even possible for us. The bar category includes any establishment that serves beverages, including breweries, distilleries, and even coffee shops. The category is for consistent excellence in what they serve and also outstanding atmosphere, hospitality, and operations, and businesses that contribute positively to their broader communities. A block away, Bo Schooler, the chef owner of Inboco Al Lupo, is rolling bagels in their kitchen. The restaurant has been named semi-finalist seven times and secured a nomination last year. He says the process is still a bit of a mystery to him. They take like an open call for nominations through just like the industry or like anyone can go and fill out an online form. And then they kind of narrow it down from there to their list. And then people come out and judge that list and that narrows you down to the nominees and then they come and judge again but I don't know who, what or when or how. He says he thinks that the recognition is helpful for restaurants in larger cities but here he isn't sure it makes a big difference. As far as locals go we've had a lot of support from the local community so it doesn't really change that in their eyes for us. Schooler says for him what makes Inboco Alupo worthy of recognition is the staff. kind of wish it wasn't my name on it and was just the restaurants. And Selenek has the same theory about Amalga. She says the tap room wouldn't be what it is without the staff. The James Beard nominees will be announced in April. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Crumery. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.